guys, all the props, right, associated with moving. Um, it's been about a year and a half, I think, since we were here. We were here uh, late 2017. Who has moved since then? Anybody moved from one place to another? Quite a few. Anybody else anticipate moving this year? Could be across town, could be across the country, whatever. So, yeah, that's actually a pretty large percentage of people. Did you guys know that like 40 million Americans move every year? That's a lot of people, and they move for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes the move is by choice, and other times the move is not by choice at all. Like truth is, sometimes a move is brought on because of a death or a divorce or some other disruption like you know the loss of a job or even an unexpected transfer. So many reasons why we move. All of the moves, whether by choice or not by choice, are super stressful, right? Anybody here that moved dealt with some significant relocation stress? I think that's a pretty normal and a pretty natural thing. Um, Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Did you know that the Bible is filled with stories about people relocating? I mean, think about it from cover to cover. Like in Genesis, you have uh, Adam and Eve being evicted from their home in the garden. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and of course, God, you know, makes a new home for us. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and even even here somewhere in between, in the middle, there were people relocating, um, people who were dealing with wanted and sometimes unwanted change. So you see, relocation becomes a metaphor, like maybe you haven't moved recently, maybe you're not going to move anytime soon, but we all deal with disruptions to our lives. We all deal with change. We often deal with unwanted change. Well, how do we deal with that? How should we approach that? Um, Daniel relocated from Judah to Babylon. It was not by choice, but you know what Daniel and others throughout the Bible discovered? You know what we can discover together here this morning is that there is transformation in relocation. So that's my title. Let's quickly pray one last time before we dive into the text. Father, I'm so grateful to be here with Miranda. Lord, we've had just an amazing time with the church and with Tim and Sarah. It's just been really, really special. We're so grateful. Right now, Lord, we sense your presence here. We've been singing together, uh, praying together, even laughing together, enjoying the videos, celebrating the marriages in this church. We sense that you're here with us, Lord, and I just ask that you would speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, first we're going to look at Daniel at the food court. Check it out, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, 
to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, just to put this on a timeline, this is like six centuries before Christ. So, you know, whereas we live a couple thousand years this side of the cross, Daniel lived like 600 years that side of the cross, roughly. And we know, both from our study of the Bible and also from consulting extra-biblical literature, history, that this was one of three attacks, three different times Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. He took captives each of those times. But this, in verses 1 and 2, is the first of those three attacks. He took King Jehoiakim as a captive. Now, Jehoiakim wouldn't be gone long. Soon after, Nebuchadnezzar would drop him right back into the land to rule as a puppet king. But Jehoiakim wasn't alone. There were others. We want to talk about those. First, I want to ask you if you remember like when you were in school and you would get a yearbook. Remember how late in the school year you would get a yearbook? Sometimes we called it an annual. Inside would be um, you know, your school picture. There might also be like a picture of your whole class. Um, and then, of course, it was fun to look through because photographers would show up at events throughout the year, right? So maybe you'd see yourself at a homecoming dance or you'd see yourself, you know, at a pep rally or whatever. You'd look through for those pictures. But then also there were those surveys, remember, where, where like you'd vote who was most likely to succeed, stuff like that. Um, those were always fun to look for. Did you ever find yourself in one of those? I actually um, had a pastor friend who, when he was in high school, was voted most likely to go to hell, which is ironic since he now helps people not go there for a living, like he gets paid to help people not go to hell. Um, If that hurt his feelings, he got over it quickly because he discovered that in that same survey, his brother had been voted most likely to marry outside the species. Somehow, you know, his label felt way better to him than that label. Um, I don't know. You can think about where you'd want to fall uh, in that little competition. Nebuchadnezzar was looking for the teenagers who were most likely to succeed. As described in verses 3 and 4, they were to be both brawny and brainy. But Nebuchadnezzar had in mind for them a three-year conditioning program. What he wanted to do was to reprogram their minds. He wanted to change their thoughts and their beliefs. And so the first thing he wanted to do is he wanted to approach their education. Notice in verse 4, the reference to their language and their literature. I don't know about you, but I've always admired people who can speak more than one language. My wife Miranda was born in Italy to American missionaries in Italy. So she lived in Italy till she was 8. She spoke Italian before she spoke English. Um, Early in her recording career, she actually re-recorded some of her songs in Italian and did a tour of Italy. I think that's really cool. Me, I'm still trying to get my mind around English. I'm still working on, you know, when to say this this way and when to say that that way and and all of that. Um, You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I remember, you know how, like, if you have kids in school, if they're in junior high or high school especially, like, as a parent, you go early in the school year and you sort of meet all their teachers. Have you guys done that? Did you do that? with kids, grandkids. So when, when my eldest daughter, Lauren, when she was in high school, she took Spanish. I remember at the beginning of the year going through, you know, you'd like follow the kids' schedule, but the bell would ring every, you know, five or ten minutes. I mean, you were only in each class long enough for the teacher to talk a little bit about the syllabus and expectations and take questions. So the Spanish teacher gave like the shortest presentation of anybody. The Spanish teacher was obsessed with all things Chewbacca. 
Weird, right? Like all year long, Chewbacca stuff in the room, but all year long, my daughter says references to Chewbacca. That doesn't have anything to do with my point. I just thought you should know that, that <laughs> he was really into Chewbacca. But, but so he gave this short presentation, and then he opened it up for questions. Only nobody asked a question. It was so awkward. Like, have you ever been in the audience, and you're feeling someone's pain? You know, because it's just like crickets, and then they try again, and it's still crickets, and they try again. I should have hooked a brother up. I should have thrown him a bone. I should have asked him something, anything. And the truth is, I actually had a question for him. I wanted to know why, after two years of high school Spanish, all I can remember is tu estas loco. Now, don't get me wrong, that could come in handy at some point, but you would think, I mean, I got a B. You'd think getting a B, two years, you'd think I'd remember more than that. Well, anyway, the Babylonians were super educated. We know now that, that, that like, you know, it, it, by those standards of that time, they were advanced in subjects like astronomy and mathematics. But by education or anti-intellectual, that's not the case at all. It's really a cool thing that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, to provide them with, with additional education. But it was more than that. He was trying to move them away from the Bible. You know, the Bible was the book that would tell Daniel and his friends who they were that would tell them who God was, that would help them understand what it meant that, that their people had been chosen by God in a very special way. Um, he wanted not only to bless them, but through them to bless the whole world. Um, the last thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar wanted was them reading about that and understanding that. Um, in fact, the Bible is the book that would help them understand why they were in captivity and even give them some insight as to how long they would be in captivity. Again, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want them uh, having anything to do with that. So he's trying to move them away from the Bible. Now, it wasn't just their education. It was also their culture. Notice in verse 5, the references to delicacies and wine. To these teenage boys, Babylon must have seemed like a food court. I mean, if you tried to keep a teenager fed... Have you tried to keep two or three fed? I know somebody that's trying to do that right now. And, you know, when you've, when you've got teenagers in your house, it's crazy, right? Like, like you can go to, you know, wherever you guys get, like, bulk groceries, Sam's Club or, you know, whatever you guys have here. And, and like, you get home, and it takes forever to even load it all in. The pantry is full. The fridge is full. And, you know, you pour yourself a, a cold drink and you sit down to catch your breath. Before you've even settled into your spot, the pantry's empty. The refrigerator is empty. How does this happen? Now, so these guys were like that, except keep in mind their city had been under siege. In ancient times, if you were going to besiege a city, one of the first things you do is cut off their food supply. So these teenagers were hungry, they were starving, and here's all this stuff, but, but they're conflicted about eating it. We're going to be talking more about this um, in just a moment, and even more later still, but they felt conflicted. Should they eat? Should they not eat? What should they eat? What shouldn't they eat? Now, we do know that the Babylonians were super cultured. Like, archaeologists have found all kinds of things, like objects of art and so forth, that speak to the culture in this region of the world during this time period, but... You know, and again, we're not anti-culture, right? Like, culture is cool. There's nothing wrong with them being exposed to new things, new experiences, stuff they might not have encountered or experienced before. That's a cool thing. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to enrich their lives with culture. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to actually move them away from their lifestyle. In the Bible, which we were talking about a moment ago, they, they had the law, right, in the Torah. They had the dietary laws, 
They had a list of things to eat and a list of things not to eat. And, and, and think of it. If you were Daniel or his friends throughout your life, every single time you sat down to eat a meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, every time you're around the table with the people that you love, you would be reminded based on what was on the table, based on what was not on the table, based on how the things on the table had been prepared, you would be reminded about your relationship with God. You'd never go through a mealtime and not think about that. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want them thinking about that. So he wants to move them away from their lifestyle, their education, their culture. Now he just wants to go straight after a third thing, their religion. Notice in verse 6 this reference to them getting new names. Have you ever wanted a new name? Wished for a new name? I have an interesting relationship with my own last name, Rig. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, it doesn't take kids long to find something to pick on. And, uh, and, and so the geniuses in my world quickly realized that rig rhymes with pig. So I went from being rig to being rig pig. And then eventually they dropped the rig, so it was just pig. And then because people cannot help themselves, like they cannot imagine that it's rig and not rigs. So just like rig always becomes rigs, so too pig quickly became pigs. So I could be walking down the hall and somebody would see me and be like, sup, pigs? I mean, like, that was my name. Like, like I hated that. I didn't like that at all. Um, you know, and so I thought about, like, well, okay, so how could I make this name work for me? You know, like, like I, I thought if I ever had a son, I would name him Big. <laughs> Big Rig. Tell me that would not be the coolest boy's name ever, ever got two beautiful daughters and a beautiful granddaughter. I never got to pull the trigger on Big Rig. Um, you know, and then back in the 80s, I played in a Christian glam rock band in, in Hollywood. And, uh, and, and so I imagined that maybe, you know, that would be like a career thing. Maybe that would last for a while. And it didn't last that long, but I imagined it might. And, and I even dreamed about what it might be like to have a solo career after that. So again, with my name, I thought, all right. Here's my chance. Like my first solo album will be called Rigamarole. Because it sounds like rock and roll, right? And then my second album will be Rigatoni. I call it that just because I could. And then when I started to get tired and I need a break, I'm ready to hang it up. Drop one last album on the world, go on one last world tour. Rigor Mortis will be the final. That's what we'll finish with. We'll end. Now, the truth is, when I was in Hollywood, I actually went by a stage name. I went by Alan Lee, so I didn't use Rig. And Lee is a play on my middle name. I, I don't like my middle name, and I know I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings, so I'll just apologize in advance. But I'm a junior. So my dad is Alan Leroy Rig Sr., which means that I am Alan Leroy Rig Jr. I hated the middle name Leroy. If your name is Leroy, I apologize. I'm sorry. You'll know in a moment that I feel differently now, but I just didn't like it. I didn't feel like a Leroy. I didn't think I looked like a Leroy. I don't know what a Leroy looks like, but I didn't think it was me. So, and, and I didn't want my friends to know my middle name was Leroy because then I'd be Leroy Pigs forever. I mean, it would just <laughs> suck. It'd be terrible. So, yeah, I didn't like it so much. But, you know, um, when I was pastoring in Austin, I'm the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel in Austin. I led that church for 18 years. Um, when I was pastoring there, my grandmother came to visit me, my dad's mom. I didn't know then that it would be the last time I would see her on this earth. Not the last time I'll see her. I know where she is. 
She's in heaven with the Lord waiting for me, and I can't wait to see her again. But I'm so glad we got that last visit. I got to have some conversations with her. I got to ask her some questions um, that I'd always wanted to ask her. And one of those at the top of the list was, what were you thinking when you gave my dad the middle name Leroy? And then I got stuck with it. And she told me that the middle name, she named my dad, his middle name, after her favorite uncle. His name was Leroy. His last name wasn't Rig. His last name was Lemon. Leroy Lemon. <laughs> wow. It's like a character from Willy Wonka or something. Like, what? But he was this beloved figure in her life. Just hearing that really changed things for me. You know, my heart softened so much about that middle name when I learned that. After she passed, my dad showed me this book filled with pictures that I'd never seen. I knew nothing about. And in this book was this picture of some of my relatives, ancestors, people that passed long before I came on the scene. Um, it was a group of like five or six men, all of them related to me. They had formed a band. So in this picture, they're all holding instruments, you know, like percussion instruments and stringed instruments. And there in that picture is Leroy. So how rock star is Leroy, man? <laughs> now that's like a rock star name to me. Isn't it interesting how knowing something about a name can completely change the way that we think about it? Well, quickly, let me say this, that the Babylonians were super religious. Like, we know that they were polytheistic. We know that they were hardcore into astrology. But let's talk for a minute about these name meanings, since we see how important the meanings of names can be. Um, I won't break it down for you. No doubt Tim has done this before. You can go to any Bible website like blueletterbible.com and click on the words and get the original words to see the meanings. But let me just like, you know, from 30,000 feet, give you the big picture view. All of their given names spoke of the one true and living God. So every single time as a kid, just like I said about the food, every single time their parent called their name, every time they heard the sound of their name in their ear, they would be reminded about God and their relationship with God. All the new names they were given spoke about one of the many gods the Babylonians worshipped. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them being reminded. He didn't want them thinking about God. He's trying to move them away from God. So we too have an enemy, don't we? His name isn't Nebuchadnezzar. We've actually got lots of names for him. We call him Satan. We call him the devil. call him the evil one. Uh, he, too, has a conditioning program. We only wish it was a three-year conditioning program. It's not. It's a lifelong conditioning program. And he is on the job 24-7, 365. He doesn't ever break for anything. He doesn't vacation. He doesn't take a lunch break. Like, he is constantly trying to change our thoughts and to reprogram our minds and to move us in our hearts away from God. So if he's trying to do those things, well, before we move on to our second point, let me ask you this question. Are you moving toward the Bible or away from it? Are you moving toward a better life, that lifestyle that God describes for us in his word, or away from it? Are you moving toward God or away from him? Daniel at the food court. Let's move on and talk about Daniel in a food fight. Yes, check it out, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. 
Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. Now, have you guys ever been in a food fight? I don't mean like, you know, at home across the dinner table in the dining room with your siblings, but like in a public place with strangers. I've totally been in one of those. This is like middle school. So I'm sitting around a table with my buddies. I mean, the place is packed. Um, you know, the, the, the din of conversation so loud you could barely hear your friend talking to you from across the table. But I'll tell you what I did hear. I did hear somebody say these two words, food fight. The next thing I knew, visibility dropped to zero. Like you guys have heard of the food pyramid? We built it right in the middle of the cafeteria. We built a pyramid of food. It was crazy, and I'll never forget what happened next. I, I've already apologized for making fun of the name Leroy. Now I've got to apologize again. Um, this, this, this is so wrong. This is so bad. I was in middle school, so you've got to cut me a little bit of slack, but me and my friends, we, we made fun of the appearance of our assistant principal. We called him Link because in our minds he resembled the missing Link. He had, he had a forehead that wouldn't stop. Like, dude would never have to buy a visor. It was like original equipment. I mean, he just, it was the craziest thing. So, so I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry. I, I've grown. I've changed. I promise. So, but Link walked into the cafeteria to try to stop, you know, all the chaos. And the minute he did, some kid launched a milkshake. I can still see it. Chocolate milkshake and a little styrofoam cup. That cup is spinning so tight, like that frozen treat's just staying packed in there until it hits Link in the head. I'll never forget that, that, that chocolate shake running off the end of his pale forehead. It was awesome. <laughs> I mean, I remember very little from that school year, but I'll never forget that. That was like an academic highlight for me. Crazy, right? So, so here's Daniel and his friends. They're in the food court. The people around them are downing the delicacies. They're washing it down with wine. And Daniel, of all people, puts his hands to his mouth and yells, Food fight! Why did Daniel want to fight about food? Well, notice in verse 8, twice there's a reference to the possibility, the potential of being defiled. Remember, we talked about how in the Old Testament we had the dietary laws, so there were the list of things to eat, the list of things not to eat. It's possible that some of the things they were served were on the not-to-eat list. To say it another way, they, they weren't kosher, either what it was or how it had been prepared. It wasn't kosher. It's also possible, even likely, that some of the food had been dedicated to idols. If you're a student of the New Testament, you know that the first Christians struggled with this. Many of them lived in parts of the Roman Empire where there was no meat available for purchase that had not been you know, offered to an idol. And so they struggled with whether or not it was okay to eat it. Paul, Paul argued that since the idol doesn't actually exist, it's a false god, it's not a god at all, that the food had been dedicated to nothing and to no one, and there was no reason that you couldn't eat it. 
But he also suggested that out of respect for the conscience of other people, that we be very careful about when and where we do that. You know, that we make it easier and not harder for others to follow Jesus and to be true to their own conscience and their own convictions. But so even in the Old Testament, this was an issue. That practice, you know, predates the time of Christ. It predates the the early church. So maybe that was an issue for, for Daniel and for his friends as well. It's possible. But here's the interesting thing. If you were Daniel and his friends, you might have thought that this all-you-can-eat buffet was a small thing, right? Like, hey, we didn't ask to be abducted. We didn't ask to be dragged from our home and from our home country to this other place. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. I mean, they're actually in this competitive situation. How did they know what the outcome was going to be? How did they know if they would be allowed to live if they didn't win the competition, if they, if they didn't please and satisfy their, their abductors, their captors? I mean, there could have been so many things going through their mind, like why not cheat a little to get ahead? Why not compromise our convictions to get ahead, to assure our spot, you know, so to speak? And, uh, and we do that oftentimes, right? But notice, I love it, in verse 8 it says he purposed in his heart. Daniel had a purposeful heart, or to turn it around and put it another way, he had a heartfelt purpose. What, what, what was that? What, what is yours? One thing I've discovered is that, like over here, if our primary purpose is to do, not so much to be, but to do, I'm all about what I'm going to accomplish, what I'm going to achieve, what I'm going to accumulate. If that's my primary focus, I'm going to be really tempted to cut corners, I'm going to be way more vulnerable, way more susceptible to the temptation to cheat to get ahead. But on the other hand, if my purpose isn't first to do, but it's first to be, my priority is on growing. It's on being the person that God's called me to be. It's on you know, spiritual growth and, and, and character and all of that. Well, then I'm not going to be as likely to cut corners to get ahead. I'm going to be less susceptible, less vulnerable to those temptations, you know, to cheat to get ahead. And here's the other thing I've noticed. The people who are doers first don't ever get around to being. This is the lie we tell ourselves. As soon as I close this deal, as soon as I flip this house, as soon as I get that promotion, as soon as we do this or we do that, then I'm going to focus on you know, my personal growth, my spiritual development, but we don't ever get to it. But over here, people who put being first, I've discovered that they almost always naturally follow that personal growth by doing the things that God's called them to do. So how much better to be a beer first and a doer second, to let that follow, to let that come along behind. So something to think about. Now, I love this. I love that Daniel didn't just refuse to eat. He could have been like that toddler that's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. You do the helicopter, you know, and they, won't, they just won't open their mouth. Or worse, they take it into their mouth and spit it right back into yours. I mean, that is like, that is the worst. Every parent, every grandparent has experienced that. Daniel could have been like that, but he wasn't. He didn't just refuse to eat, and he didn't give up when the chief eunuch said he couldn't help him. He went on to suggest an alternative to the steward. You guys have heard that saying, right, that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem? I mean, anyone can point out a problem, and most people do, but very few people will offer a solution, and even fewer will take ownership of it. 
Let me, let me let you in on a little something that maybe you know, maybe you don't. That is just as true at church as it is anywhere else. If I had a dollar for every time, in the 18 years I pastored Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas, if I had a dollar for every time someone approached me to tell me what they thought was wrong, I'd never have to work another day in my life. But it was a real small subset of those people who actually had an idea of what to do about it. And it was an even smaller subset of that group that had any intention of doing it themselves, of rolling up their sleeves. It was always something for me to do or for my staff to do or for our leadership to pay for or whatever it might be. It was, wasn't them. So, so here's what I want to say. Do you want to stand out? Do you want to set yourself apart at work, at school, at church? at home, with the people who live under the same roof as you. Well, be a problem solver and not just a problem spotter. I've discovered that there are two kinds of people in this world, by the way. This diet was a vegetarian diet. The suggestion was give us vegetables. There are veggie lovers and there are veggie haters. I am a veggie lover. How many veggie lovers do we have here this morning? Yeah, quite a few. How many veggie haters do we have? Yeah, see, some of you can't get your hand all the way up over your head because you're malnourished. You don't have enough vitamins and nutrients. I do love me some vegetables. Like, like you know you love veggies when you love veggies that some veggie lovers hate. Let me throw out some things and see if you're down. Like, like who's down with the artichoke hearts? Oh, come on. So, so good. I'll push you a little bit. What about Brussels sprouts? Come on now. So good. Other things a person on a vegetarian diet might eat that I like. Like what about hominy? See, I could do the hominy. I'm losing people. I'm losing people. I'm in danger of people walking out now. Hominy. How, okay, now I'm really going to push you now. Lima beans. Come on now. A little butter, a little salt never hurt. Oh, so good. But even though I love vegetables, no one has ever accused me of being a vegetarian. I love my meat. I love it. I was, I was so happy that you guys served barbecue Friday night. Like, like I would have walked from L.A. just to have barbecue with you guys. We had a favorite barbecue place in Austin. It was called Pokey Joe's Smokehouse. And um, they had my favorite restaurant T-shirt of all time. You know what it said? This Pokey Joe's Smokehouse T-shirt said, Vegetarian is Indian for can't hunt. That's how we rolled in Texas. I've got a pastor friend up in Maine who says if God didn't mean for us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of steak. I think that's a philosophy to live by. So there's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, that's totally awesome. I just want to say that that's not really the point of the text. Like they, they, they didn't choose that diet for the reasons that someone might choose it today. It goes back to those spiritual reasons that we talked about. Um, there's lots of different reasons, right? But, but they, were, they were trying to not eat things that weren't kosher or things that had been offered to idols. So it's totally okay to eat meat, not eat meat. It's all good. Daniel at the food court, in the food fight, and finally with food for thought. Check it, verse 15. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
Now, this was like a, an eating competition of sorts. You ever turn on your TV and find competitive eating? It's the craziest thing. You turn on a sports channel, and there's people eating. It's weird. Like, like when did that become a sport? I don't know. But, but you turn it on, and, and you see people eating. Did you know that, like, it's legit. If you're familiar with competitive eating at all, you probably know this name, Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut is like the king of competitive eaters. Joey Chestnut is banking $200,000 a year shoving hot dogs and hot wings down his throat. I mean, if you had known when you were a teenager that you could get paid to eat the way you were eating, it might have changed your whole life. Like you might have skipped college and just posted up at the local buffet and developed your skills, you know? I mean, who needs a diploma? I just need some pizza and wings to get my... Get my tolerance built up. So, so anyway, you know, here's this competitive eating situation, and Daniel and his friends, they won. They won on, on a vegetarian diet. Before you run to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or wherever you like to get your produce, you need to read the fine print on the diet. It does say in verse 15 that, that afterwards they were fatter in flesh. Now, I don't have a degree in marketing, but I'm pretty sure that's no way to market your diet plan. I mean, I often count points of what I'm eating, and it's because I'm already fatter in flesh. It's not to get, anyway, I think you know where I'm going with that. Obviously, this had less to do with one's gut and more to do with one's God. That's the thing we need to see. So listen, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. Say it again. Life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. So what part of your life isn't working? And in what way is that part of your life out of alignment with God? You know, some years ago when I was in Austin, uh, for a while my sister was also living in Austin and she had a problem with her van. Her van was giving her some trouble and as she described it to me, it sounded like an alignment issue. And uh, she asked me if I would go with her to the mechanic to, to tell, you know, the mechanic what I thought it was. I agreed to do that. So we're there in the front talking to the person that greeted us. And uh, so he, he pulled up her account in the computer. She'd been there before. So he pulled up her account and he says, oh yeah, we told you the last time you were here that you needed a front end alignment. It had been months since she'd been told that. So here's what's never happened in the history of driving. No one with a car out of alignment has ever been driving down the road. They hit a pothole. Hey, we're back in alignment. Like, it's unbelievable. No one has ever driven their car back into alignment. And no one has ever just lived their life back into alignment either. Just like you've got to address the misalignment with your car, you've got to address the misalignment with your life. You have to be intentional. You have to be deliberate. You have to be proactive. So it's time for us to really give this some serious thought. In what part of my life am I out of alignment with God? We need to read the Bible and see what it says about that part of life. We need to pray and see what God would say to us about that part of life. We need to ask wise people around us, those people who know us best and love us most, you know, what they can speak into our lives about that part of life. Picking it up in verse 18, now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, 
And then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So it was test time. I've talked about school more than once already this morning, but you guys remember when it was time for a test? Man, I hated tests. And there were so many. There were pop quizzes. There were midterms. There were finals. There were written tests, and there were oral tests. There were fill-in-the-blank tests and multiple-choice tests and true-false tests. I mean, who can forget the words now? Take out your Scantron form and number two pencil. Like, am I the only one who gets PTSD when I hear those words? Like, no! Scary, right? So, so three years have come and gone, and it is test time. And for them, it was going to be an oral exam before Nebuchadnezzar himself. Oh, my goodness. That must have been so scary, so intimidating. But they aced it. Don't you love it? They aced it. Now, notice in verse 21, it says that Daniel continued. If we continued to read Daniel, you know what we would discover? We would discover that his story and that of his friends didn't end in the food court. For Daniel's friends, there would be a fiery furnace in chapter 3. For Daniel, there would be a lion's den in chapter 6. You know that in life, the tests only get harder. Do you think that there's any way that Daniel's friends could have been prepared for the fiery furnace had they not experienced the food court first? Do you think that for Daniel, there would have been any way that he could have been prepared for the lion's den had he not experienced the food court first? And what does this mean about us? What does this mean about your life or about mine? Anybody here in a food court? Are you, are you in a place? You didn't ask for this place. This isn't a place you ever thought you'd be. And it's tough. And maybe you don't even know what to do. And you're struggling right now. And there's a part of you that's like, where are you, God? Why would you even let this happen? What am I doing here? Are you even there? Do you even care? If you knew, if you knew that ahead for you was a fiery furnace... Or if you knew that ahead for you was a lion's den and that the only way you could ever be prepared for it was if you experienced the food court first. Could you thank God for the food court? Could you come to see the food court as a mercy? And maybe that will transform the way you feel about your food court now. At the same time that God was testing them, Satan was tempting them. And you know what they were telling themselves. You know there had to be some part of them that was thinking, it's just a little sin. This is what we tell ourselves, right? It's not a big sin. It's a little tiny thing. It's not a huge, it's just an itty-bitty harmless little, that's what we tell ourselves, right? Here's the thing. I'm not saying to you that everyone who compromises in a small thing goes on to compromise in a big thing. That wouldn't be true. Not everybody does that. But here's what I am saying. Everyone who compromises in a big thing compromised in a small thing first. I know by experience 
I've made some colossal mistakes in my life, times where I've made bad choices, times where I've sinned. And those big things were always preceded by what? By little things. You know it by experience too. Your greatest failures were always preceded by smaller ones. So maybe, maybe we should say that, that you know, everything is big, that there are no small things, that everything matters, that even the smallest things matter to God and should matter to us. And so with that in mind, I want you to notice again, I want you to think about you know, your life and how it's right here and right now that your attitudes are being developed, your habits are being formed, the decisions that you're making now have everything to do with the decisions that you'll make later. But Daniel, he continued, Dan the man, he would outlast Nebuchadnezzar. He would outlast the Babylonian Empire. We've seen him at the food court in a food fight and with food for thought. Now, you know what you're going to notice later? When you go back on your own, maybe you'll do that this afternoon. Maybe you'll do it this week. Maybe a year from now, you'll stumble on Daniel chapter 1. But when you read it again, you're going to notice that rather than God being absent, he was very much present. Back in verse 2, notice the phrase, the Lord gave. Verse 9, the elliptical phrase, God brought. Verse 17, the phrase, God gave. God's fingerprints were all over this story beginning to end. And in yours. So as you're there in the food court right now, I want you to just push back from the table a little bit and have a look around. Do you see God's fingerprints on the napkin dispenser? Do you see them on the flatware? Do you see his fingerprints on the back of your chair? Do you see his fingerprints on the light switch? Do you see his fingerprints on the door handle? God's fingerprints are all over your story too. He hasn't forgotten about you. Nothing you're going through has escaped his attention. He's there, he cares, and he's got a plan. Like Daniel, we can trust him. Like Daniel, we can follow him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Miranda's going to come back up so we can do one last worship song together. Father, I'm so thankful for Daniel's life and example and that of his friends too. Thankful that we have this Bible book that we can read and study and learn from. God, I pray that rather than just admiring Daniel, we could actually follow his example, that we could dare to be Daniels, as we sometimes say. Lord, I pray that this message has been an encouragement to people here in this service. And I pray that, that Lord, even as we sing this last song together, that it could be an expression of our faith in you, in who you are, in your great power, in your ability to deliver, to save. May we find great comfort in that. Fill our hearts with peace and with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.